Welcome to Found in Conversation, a podcast that pushes intellectual frontiers and promotes the values of long-term thinking, independence, entrepreneurship, and responsibility. I'm Edie Lush, your host. In this episode, we'll look at Europe's recent history, the post-wall era, as one of our guests calls it, right up to today, and ask what's next for the European project. Guiding us through the history, diplomacy, politics, and economics of Europe today, we have with us a veritable parliament of owls. Timothy Garton Ash, historian of the present, a professor of European studies at the University of Oxford, columnist for The Guardian, author of 10 books, and senior adjunct fellow at the Hoover Institution. His most recent book is Homelands, a personal history of Europe which is both wide-ranging and a very specific account of the European project. Baroness Catherine Ashton of Upholland. From 2009 to 2014, she was the first person to be the European Union's High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, effectively the EU's Foreign Minister. She was the first woman Britain sent to the European Union, and, as she writes in her book, she was rather unexpectedly the last. She chaired the Iran nuclear talks that led to a deal. She was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for the Serbia-Kosovo deal. And her book is called And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy. And Frederick Ducrozet, head of macroeconomic research at Piquetet Wealth Management. He leads the team of economists based in Geneva and Hong Kong and is in charge of producing the bank's economic scenarios, analysis, and publications, and helps to create the House view. He is also a member of the ECB's Shadow Council. He's been with Piquet since 2015 and, interesting for our discussion today, was senior economist at Credit Agricole during the financial crisis in 2008. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So Tim, let's start with you. You've described your book as a history of Europe and freedom. Say more about that. If we're owls, and I'm a very old owl, because um, this book took me just 50 years to write, 50 years of traveling around Europe. And um, when I started traveling in Europe in the early 1970s, most Europeans were still living under dictatorships. People forget that in the early 1970s, not just in Eastern Europe, but in Spain, Portugal, and Greece. And so it is, in a way, a story of the extraordinary spread of freedom and of the geopolitical West, particularly through what I call the post-wall period. You mentioned that. So Tony Judd famously wrote about the post-war period. Post-wall, starting on the 9th of November 1989, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and ending, I argue, on the 24th of February last year with Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And basically that period falls into two halves, you know, like a game of football. 
There's a, a broadly speaking, an upward curve through to about 2007 with an extraordinary enlargement of freedom of the EU, of NATO, of course, with major setbacks. And then starting 2008, with the global financial crisis and Putin's seizure of two chunks of Georgia, two separate but almost simultaneous developments, you have what I call the downward turn, and frankly, a cascade of crises starting in 2008, which in a way is really continuing to this day, all the way down to, you know, the largest war in Europe since 1945. Frederick, let's bring you in. You had a, I want to rewind to 2008, where you had a ringside seat for the 2008 financial crisis. That's the moment when Tim called this downward turn. I wonder if you could tell us what you were doing then and what you see as the economic legacy that Europe was left with after the euro crisis. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for having me. It was, uh, well, quite, uh, I would say, an existential crisis for all of us beyond finance. I mean, I work in finance. I was in financial markets. I was in a trading room. So that's kind of special uh, in terms of uh, working, uh, you know, atmosphere and everything, but it, it went well beyond that. I had sometimes, um, we had some involvement and investment in Greece. So, uh, needless to say, we, we were under a great deal of pressure, but it was, it, it went beyond that. I was very worried that, uh, over the weekend, something would happen. And, uh, you know, uh, on Monday, we would have to, uh, re-denominate all our contracts in, uh, French franc, in Deutsche Mark. And that's where we were. My younger colleagues, by the way, were not there. So when, we, when they talk about uh, crisis and the BTP boon spreads in Italy widening and things like that, I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm just wondering whether they actually know what they're talking about. Because at that time, it was not about the level of interest rates. It was, again, about this redenomination premium that was, I mean, Mario Draghi that, that addressed uh, eventually that uh, Greece could leave and what would happen after that. Uh, Italy would be the next uh, domino to fall. And that was really a... We, we went through many crises again, but this one was a very special one. And I think what I see as the most fascinating, um, I would say, takeaway of all of this is that indeed what did not kill us at the time made us stronger. And step after step, I mean, it's both a depressing thought and a source of hope is that Europe only made those necessary steps, in my view, once we uh, got no other choice. I mean, we made the, the right choice after having made all the possible mistakes. Did you want to say something, Tim? I did, actually, because I'm fascinated by what Frederick said about his younger colleagues. And I think all of us have been thinking about how you learn from history. And um, one of the great themes of my book is how the European project has essentially been driven forward by four generations with formative personal experiences, right? I say the 14ers. Yeah, Charles de Gaulle, Winston Churchill, Harold Macmillan, formative experience as, 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 as young men in the First World War, the 39ers, Second World War, the 68ers, the 89ers, people who were young in 89, that magical moment, a very distinctive generation. And the problem is, in a way, a problem of success, that in much of Europe, we now have, for the first time ever, a generation of Europeans who've known nothing but a Europe which is pretty peaceful, except in Ukraine, fairly prosperous, not everywhere, reasonably free. And inevitably, if you grow up with something like that, you take it as normal, you almost take it for granted. And so the, the big question is, can we learn from those difficult histories? Can we watch out for those mistakes that Frederick was talking about? 
Well, speaking of those painful experiences, Catherine, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, you took your role in 2009, spent a lot of your time speaking with Ukraine and with Russia in the years all the way up to 2014, um, when then President Yanukovych in Ukraine decided not to sign the association agreement with the EU, which now seems like such a pivotal moment. And I wonder if you could give us a little bit of color about that time and with some good hindsight, what you or others might have done differently. I remember it very distinctly because he walked across to me in the lobby of a hotel in Vilnius and said, I can't sign it. And it's worth recalling that this had been negotiated for seven years. It had been a pivotal part of his election platform to become president. It had been initialed. It was all done. All we were doing was the kind of grand ceremony when leaders get together and there is a sort of flourish of a pen and it's all done. So it was a done deal in that sense. My reflections on it at the time and in those early months of being in Maidan, and I know Timothy was there too, was that probably in the course of doing what was a technical piece of work, somehow the politics got lost. We had met with the Russians regularly, with President Putin before him, President Medvedev, with the foreign minister, and only once in all of that time do I recall any suggestion that there was a real problem. And that was when I invited the foreign minister of Russia to the Foreign Affairs Council for lunch. That just shows you what a different relationship it was. He comes to have lunch with all of the foreign ministers of the European Union. And he started to complain about it, that it would be detrimental to Russia. So there's a real reflection uh, at one level that the politics got lost. On the other hand, when people say, well, there must have been lots of warning signs. Actually, there weren't. In the, in the traditional sense. But what we'd not understood was, I suppose, the journey that Putin had been on in terms of what he saw as both legacy, he was not going to be the president who lost Ukraine to the West, and history in terms of his perception and belief about the role and status of Russia. You write about those looking glass moments, and it sounds like that might have been one of them, where the EU's perspective of events seems so different than Russia's view. You write about them with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and as well with President Putin. Highlight another one of those moments and what, what we can learn from them as we sit in the West. In any negotiation, mediation, conversation with somebody who is by definition, taking a different perspective. You always have to begin with what are they looking at? And it's never what you're looking at. I mean, you're seeing the same things. You see the same people. You'll see the same imagery. But what you really are looking at is something different. And that was very clear that whenever you talk to Russia about what was going on in Ukraine, they saw or choose to see, is the other way of looking at it, something different. So they saw a president driven out of office who had to go and be sort of rescued by living in Russia. They saw that we were, in their terms, hypocritical on that. He'd been elected. He'd been driven out. Where were we? We were always supposed to be on the side of democratically elected people and institutions. They saw 
when they looked at political leaders standing in Medan that came from Europe or came from the United States, that this would be unacceptable if they were doing the same thing in a European capital. So they they viewed the events and they picked out the events that spoke to their view of the past and of the present and also, of course, fitted with what they wanted to then do as a consequence. And these were in the early days, before Crimea had gone, before any suggestion of what was really a decade of fighting, because this war has been going on a very long time. Um, It's just that we've sort of let it or ignored it in that sense until the terrible events of the full invasion. Tim, what would you add to that? You were in Maidan in those years. What did you see? How do you reflect it's an odd thing about the EU, and Cathy could speak more to this, that it, it finds it very difficult to think about its own power. You know, everybody talks about NATO enlargement and was that the thing that provoked Putin? But actually the key trigger was a, an agreement with the EU, not with NATO, because he's really frightened of the EU. Whereas our national leaders, French, German, British, Polish, are very happy to talk in exaggerated terms about their own power, right? I mean, I, I tell in Homelands the story of meeting Helmut Kohl in 1991 when he just united Germany, and suddenly he says to me, do you realise you're sitting opposite the direct successor to Adolf Hitler? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's quite a conversation stopper for you. But also, he's thinking in historical dimensions about Germany and his responsibility. But what about the EU? And now... Eddie, we have this great discussion about a major new eastward enlargement to bring in Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, and the Western Balkans. Huge, you know, historical development. And and how does the EU talk, talk about it? It talks about it as absorption capacity. That was to be. That was about to be my question for for the both of you. I mean, how do should we deal with that immense challenge? How to strike the right balance between enlargement and, and, and limits to these uh, extensions and to the recent in emerging uh, tensions that we can see in Poland, in others, with elections coming? Well, there are big questions in all of that. <laughs> I mean, the, the first thing, that, well, let me just say something about Brussels, which I found extraordinary when I was there. It is the only place on earth where you have failed if you don't reach a conclusion and an agreement even with some of the most difficult leaders in the EU, the diplomats, the ministers who all show up for the meeting do not want to be the one in the end who causes the problem. There's a lot of noise in the systems, a lot of press conferences about how awful everybody else is, there's lots of shouting and and jumping about and all the rest of it. But there is an absolute determination inherent in being in Brussels to find an answer. I used to repatriate things from different places that we needed to resolve to Brussels because I knew that we would find a solution there. And that's a really extraordinary thing and something we we don't often reflect upon. I think the challenge was always going to be for the EU. How does it take institutions and a framework designed for a period that's really long gone and allow that to absorb in their own terms or be able to expand with nine more countries and that's 
really difficult because it won't it won't work in its present form. They admit that. This is why reform of the institutional framework is on the agenda alongside the enlargement over the next few years. And you see those two things will run in parallel. The challenge of that is that whenever they do institutional change, it takes much, much longer. Between deciding upon the role that I played and that role coming into existence, 10 years passed. It's not a quick or easy thing to do. And the ideas that will move around will be around countries being prepared not to play an equal role in some form or another, whether that's commissioners or whatever it is. And that's going to be very, very difficult for any of the countries to even contemplate. So this is a really challenging time. And it's why you're starting to hear ideas of different bits of Europe. It used to be called concentric circles. Whether they'll come back with that phraseology, I don't know. But the idea that there would be those that need to be closer, because geographically that makes sense. Those who want to have a different relationship because politically they prefer it. And then the role of countries like Ukraine, who they want to see in the EU, but know that the process of simply doing the homework you have to do is a long and difficult one. I I would start by saying enlargement is the great historical success story of the European Union. You took what were just six countries when I started traveling in Europe in 1972, up to 28, now down to 27, alas, but now going on possibly 35, all of which, and this is the key point that Kathy made, make George or not war war. Ultimately, they're committed to resolving their quite deep differences by negotiation. That's an amazing success. And, and it has to be done differently this time. It's absolutely clear. Um, I, I'm not sure, I, I don't believe it's going to be as neat as concentric circles. I think it'll be such a neat, I think it's going to be variable and, and maybe messy geometry. But the key for me is, number one, Frederick, to have a strategic commitment to it, right? To say this is something we really want to do in the frame of the next decade. And I don't yet see that from all European capitals. Paris has changed dramatically and impressively on this, but Berlin has not yet put its enormous weight behind it. That's point number one. We want to do it. Point number two, doing it differently, for me, means incremental accession. This is something really new, where Ukraine, step by step, as it reforms its telecommunications sector, comes into the telecommunications, its infrastructure into the infrastructure, partial membership of the single market, maybe eventually full membership of the single market, but not the political institutions of the EU. That, for me, is something innovative and is a way forward that creates a variable geometry. It creates the incentive structure Uh, which wasn't there in the Western Balkans, for accession countries to go on reforming because they get something at every stage, not just, you know, waiting for the birthday cake after 20 years. And by the way, last comment, there's an opportunity in this for poor old post-Brexit Britain. Because if you're actually getting an EU which is more variable geometry, more a la carte, then a, you know, sensible British government, which I hope we'll get next year, Um, can actually plug itself into more parts of of, of the European project. Frederick, I know that you've done a lot of 
work looking at Europe after Brexit. And I think that you have a view that actually for Europe, Brexit might have in some ways been quite a good thing. So now it's the French guy stepping in with schadenfreude and uh, of course, of course not, of course not. I'm half Austrian also, if I can help. So I always try to strike the balance between the views. No, but I think it all makes a lot of sense. And yes, of course, obviously, from our perspective on the continent, it's not been a good thing. I mean, we all have so many friends and colleagues in, in, in London and elsewhere that have been struggling uh, and it's not fixed, far from it in my view. But it, it did have a huge implication for all those parties across, I mean, the, the radical left, the radical right, in my country, elsewhere. No one really that I can know that is meaningful in the political landscape today is still uh, still running on an agenda to, to exit the EU. It's I think it's over for now, at least, perhaps not forever. So that's a, that's a major um, implication. Then again, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit worried. It's part of my job as well uh, to, to try and, and see the risk that, uh, you know, if you have some, at some point, Le Pen in France or, or even uh, other populists uh, that are no longer, I mean, running again on an agenda to exit, that they might try and, uh, again, fight uh, or oppose some of the initiatives that we have at the moment. And the biggest one, of course, Ukraine, on the one hand, there could be some challenge funding uh, these resources in the next few years. You raised something really interesting, Frederick, and it's, you know, the, the question around nationalism is, I think, a really important one. And it's not just, of course, in, in Europe, it's, a, it's an issue around the world. But in, in Europe, it does seem that a lot of the nationalism has been linked to the migration. I'd love to know your view, first of all, of the, the economic cost versus benefit of migrants. You know, I'm from California, and, and actually there's a lot of studies about the productivity in California that we could not have done it without illegal migration. Um, and I just would love to hear your perspective on, on how the economics works. You know, in theory, it's easy. It's, it's, it's not only positive, it's uh, mandatory. With the demographics we have, we're facing the aging of the population. We need more uh, immigration in a, in a way that makes it possible and politically acceptable. Then we remember also via um, Schattendas uh, in, in Germany that uh, we can actually sometimes, when you have the political will and the resources, uh, succeed. It's obviously very different from one country to the other. My personal opinion in this is that we Europeans failed in the past again on that, um, helping Italy in particular. It's easy to blame Italy for a number of things, but where was uh, the Europe, uh, where were the EU funds and the resources and the help and integration at the time when Italy needed it the most? And I think we're still a little bit far away from what would really would work. Again, that's a topic that is going to, to create some tensions and noise, in my opinion, in the next election. Catherine, I, I saw that the man who now holds your position at the EU today, Josep Borrell, said that, that migration is, could be a dissolving force for the European Union. Um, despite establishing a shared common external border, we haven't been able until now to agree on a common migration policy. I mean, from my perspective, Migration is ancient, unstoppable, and positive if it's well-managed. And we just haven't seen that well-managed part. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily um, see this as a dissolving issue, but I do think it's an issue that is such a push and pull factor on the EU, as it is on individual countries, that it... it dramatically changes the political scene. It becomes the issue that there is the greatest noise around. 
And it's used as an issue in the political arena more than any other to make points that um, are about getting yourself elected, you know, that you use it one way or another. And it means that as a general observation, people move away from being sensible and thinking about it to simply trying to manage the rhetoric that they need to in a political sense. So management is a, is everything, and it's about starting with some pretty fundamental questions. And the first one, and you've already said this, is it's happening, it's always happened, and it's on the rise, not least because of the impact of climate change, which is going to dramatically increase migration flows, not necessarily to Europe or in Europe, but certainly across the world. And that always has a knock-on effect. It's a long-term issue that people need to address with long-term solutions. And it needs to be thought about in the context of our own needs as nations and as a continent. And the trouble is within the EU, you have very many different experiences of migration. You have very many different expectations of country. There are countries within the EU where they have populations that themselves have been on the move, young people moving around Europe to find opportunity, jobs and so on, populations that have changed, as well as populations that feel that they're on the receiving end of migration and that they feel at times it's migration that doesn't have with it the systems in place to be able to help them manage it. And Italy's a case in point, Greece would be another, Malta another and so on. So this is a, is a big issue and what needs to happen is that people need to get a grip of it and to get a grip of it together, which is not going to be done as an agenda item in the Justice and Home Affairs Committee. It's got to be done as a much bigger, longer-term collaboration. I wonder if we can talk a little bit, Frederick, about the Europe that we're in now. It's a Europe of, of high interest rates high debt levels, um, inflation levels may be coming down, but the cost of living uh, is still very high for many. We've heard about, we've spoken about nationalist politics. I'd love you to paint the picture of what's important to think of now as we gaze now from the present into the future. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a difficult, um, I would say, transition into a new world where indeed I think it will be a Higher for longer is the, the name of the game in markets, higher interest rates, uh, higher cost of living, higher cost of borrowing, both for governments, for companies. You know, uh, there's been this criticism for 10, 15 years, which I think is uh, at least partly true, that Germany and other countries with low debt, low borrowing cost, negative. I mean, I, I still have to explain that to my grandmother or my children, how to can actually pay you to lend money to a government. But that happened. Uh, and they did not completely grasp this opportunity, uh, to say the least, to really invest in these uh, areas of the of the of the economies, infrastructure, digitalization, schools, hospitals that we need now. Uh, and it's always easier uh, to say it after the after the fact. I I, under, I fully understand, but the black zero kind of religion uh, in Germany did create some uh, some of this uh, damage, I think. And and. Ultimately, you pay in the cost. So again, we are now here uh, where we are. We cannot go backwards. Uh, I think it will be a challenge for the EU budget. It may create some tensions, as we saw uh, in some countries. And we have to adapt to that. The answer 
perhaps a little bit naive on the economics uh, side of it is that you need more growth because in the equation of debt, debt in itself, I believe, is not a problem in itself per se. It's, it's the way you manage it. Uh, and if you get growth, a little bit of inflation, so not 1% uh, uh, like in the past 20 years, but maybe 2, 2.5, and you tolerate it and you have stronger growth, productivity, you invest in the right um, segments of the, of the market, in the right sectors of the economy, then you can actually uh, manage the situation. And I will just give you an example. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm rather on the bullish side of, uh, uh, in Europe, I see the, the glass as, as half full still, uh, but I was still surprised this year until let's say the next, the last few days that despite this very fast, the fastest increase in interest rates in history, uh, uh, we haven't had any accidents. Italy, Italy, uh, um, interest rates are higher, but the spread, the, 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 the gap with Germany has remained broadly stable. And I think that's, again, uh, um, uh, the, the, the result of all the measures that have been taken over the past 10 years. The ECB, of course, the European Central Banks is very flexible, ready to help, but also the, the cooperation, uh, the mutualization, the fiscal integration that we have achieved. My answer, again, a little bit naive, perhaps, is that we need to do even a little bit more of that, um, complete the banking union, complete the capital market union, we're never going to have a, a perfectly optimal monetary union like the United States of Europe, and maybe it's not even desirable. But I think we, it is desirable to go one step forward in terms of integration, because then you can absorb the shocks. When it's Italy, you share the burden. When it's maybe Germany today, you share the burden. And uh, countries see the results and, and, and can see this kind of initiatives as positive instead of uh, over the past 10 years, you know, a cost for your citizen. So Germany seems to be quite central to the European project. It always has been. Um, Tim, I wonder if you could reflect on how serious you see Germany about reducing dependence on, on China, on Russia, and about enlarging the EU, as Fredericks mentioned. Germany is Europe's central power, now more than ever. That's absolutely clear. And you know, I mentioned Helmut Kohl in 1991. There you had someone who really had a vision of linking the national to the European. So his point was, Hitler tried to put a German roof over Europe. I'm going to put a European roof over Germany. I'm going to link German and European unification. And before that, Willy Brandt had a vision of Eastern policy, Ostpolitik. And before that, Konrad Adenauer had a vision, which was very original and, and bold, of integrating the Federal Republic, the new Federal Republic, into the West. So those are three big strategic visions for Germany. And in my view, what we now need is a fourth one, which is what I call a Gesamteuropapolitik, an all-Europe policy, where you precisely Germany leads shared European thinking about how you connect enlargement, internal reform of the EU, and what Frederick was talking about, making it more economically dynamic at the same time, creating the jobs. I'm afraid I don't yet see that coming from Olaf Scholz in the Federal Chancery, but we're working on them. Catherine, I want to I want to give you the last word. Um, I'd love to end on a high note. What do you think the EU's secret power is? Partly the ability to work together, which is um, never to be underestimated. I mean, when you actually, as I did, chair the councils, and around them sit twenty seven, then twenty eight. Obviously, now back to twenty seven. 
different ministers, often in coalition governments. So in two councils, you'll have two different political parties in at least 10 countries around the table. So you've got a complete mixture. But this desire to be there and this desire to sort of find a way through is not to be underestimated. It's also a massive economic power and it doesn't see itself as that. It, it, it is quite interesting that Europe does not recognise its own strength. If I could say anything to it, it would be feel your own strength. So the, the challenge really is for all of us to try and support it, to keep going with the values, to not worry, to, you know, it will wobble, but it will get there, I think, in terms of its capacity. And isn't it exciting that all of these countries see that the best hope for their own future is to be inside it? What struck me from my conversation with Tim, Catherine and Frederick was the sense that all the challenges, war in Ukraine, migration pressures, higher cost of living and inflation, offer us a chance. Just like the chance grabbed by the 14ers, the 39ers, the 68ers and the 89ers, those pivotal generations that Tim spoke about, who chose to create a new Europe from the ashes of what had come before. Economists sometimes talk about creative destruction, the process by which new ideas and technologies replace old ones. We know that it is an essential part of economic progress, and we know it can also be disruptive and painful. I was reminded of this concept during our conversation, that from destruction, from conflict, a new spirit of creation and cooperation can arise. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of Found in Conversation as much as I have. And if you did like it, please do give us a five-star rating, subscribe, and share with someone else you think might be interested. And I look forward to our next encounter.